I'm afraid that we have, we being radio, have lost our way at what we do best. And what we do best is we interact with our audience personally. Welcome to the Gary Scott Thomas Show. Here's what we know. The podcast with unexpected conversations. Listen each week as we engage in unscripted conversations where we'll be just as surprised as you will be with where the dialogue goes. So join us each week and be privy to the captivating conversations that are sure to ensue. Here's your host, Gary Scott Thomas. And welcome to the latest edition of Here's What We Know. And I am very excited about I When I first started this podcast, one of the first people I thought to myself is, you know who I'm going to get on this thing? I'm going to get on this thing. Hopefully, this will be the easiest one, but maybe not. Maybe he'll tell me, oh, go screw yourself. But <laughs> the general manager of the place where I work, KRTY in San Jose, his name is Nate Deaton. Hey, Nate. We're socially distanced this way as what we're doing is we're, we're in the, in the COVID times, but Nate and I have worked together forever. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Nate, I will tell you, he's one of the smartest people I know. And especially when it comes into the world of entertainment and country music, he is able to take information and extrapolate what's relevant about it. Now, I know you think, what does that even mean? When somebody can take and give you numbers, <laughs> somebody can give you numbers, you know, because you just get this data. <laughs> what does it mean? And what Nate has always been great at is he can take these numbers and go, here's what they're saying. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to get a little bit of that because I want to bounce things off of you. But first and foremost... I want to get how you got here. You grew up in San Jose, right? It's easier to say it this way that I was born and raised here. But in reality, I was born in uh, Southern California in a very small uh, city called Brawley, California, which is uh, seven miles from Mexicali, out in the middle of the Imperial Valley. Um, and my parents, when I was 10, decided that there was no future in the Imperial Valley, the Imperial Valley for us. So we moved here to San Jose in 1971, um, which was vastly different than it is today. But so I, I claim to be born and raised here because really from the difference between 1971 and even when I graduated from high school in 1980 was a dramatic change. And then, I went to San Jose State because my parents didn't really want me to leave since they went to all the trouble of moving here. Um, and really, it was different by 1985. And then I really was fascinated by radio and thought it was the greatest thing ever. So I took a couple of radio TV classes in high school and went to college with the idea of being a radio TV major and realized how bad I sucked at it. So I, I, I changed my, I changed my major, uh, halfway through my sophomore year to public relations and ended up getting an internship because San Jose State and one of the main, one of the many, many great things that San Jose State does is required you to do an internship as part of your degree. So I ended up getting an internship at KSJO in 1984, which was in the middle of, you know, especially this week with the um, 
passing about Van Halen, it was a dream job for me because I was a rock and roll guy and I got to go work at my favorite rock station. And from that moment on, from 1984 on, entertainment and radio and uh, events have been what I've done. And I left KSJO and went to Santa Clara County Fair and I was at Santa Clara County Fair for seven years doing all the headline entertainment and, and, um, and came to Care 2 in 1994. So that, it was, radio was always the goal. When did, when did you, when did the idea of doing something in, in entertainment become a legitimate thought in your mind? Um, really, in those days, there was an old bar, there was an old club um, in the rock world called the Keystone Palo Alto. And the Keystone Palo Alto in, in the mid-80s when I was there um, was, I mean, it, it still stays with me to this day that all the, I mean, you know, in those days, Huey Lewis was playing a lot of club dates. Greg um, Ken was playing a lot of club dates. And those guys, I mean, this is like Huey Lewis before anyone knew who Huey Lewis was. And um, it was always fascinating to me to see the audience interaction with these artists as they were um, coming up and, and becoming fans. And they got to see these artists become bigger and bigger stars. And then, you know, at the fair, same thing. We had, we had an interesting contrast at the fair because we had both. We had we had the up and coming guys, but then we had bands like Tower of Power, and we had uh, one of the greatest uh, days of my career was we got Peter Frampton to play at the freaking Santa Clara County Fair, <laughs> and, and I mean I stood in line for hours to see Frampton at a day on the green, and you know I mean he was a hero to me. That was my eighth grade, ninth grade, high school years of Peter Frampton. And Frampton comes alive. Um, for those of you who aren't the old talking enough, guitar, it was, it was do you feel like we do? Exactly. It was the biggest selling live album of all time. And the funny thing about that, of course, was that he really had not much of any success before that live album. Um, anyway, so I guess that's what really, and, and the beautiful thing about doing shows, whether it be at the old, there was a Johnny Winter show at the old Keystone Palo Alto, and I got there, and you always went in the back door of the Keystone, and the bouncer said to me, he goes, hey, um, whatever you need tonight, just let me know, but I think you should probably stay back here at Safer. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Winter. How'd you like to be Johnny Winter? And you're you're the you're the lesser known brother of Edgar. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, the, how, what what are the odds you would have two albinos end up being rock stars? I mean, that was it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And those and, were and Ronnie Montrose. Ronnie Montrose had such stage fright that he wouldn't go on stage, and that's why he did that whole thing of all of those electronics. And then one night, literally, he was cowering in the dressing room, and Bob Corona, who was the owner of the, of the Keystone, went and grabbed him by the shirt collar and threw him up on stage and said, play! <laughs> <laughs> they, those were, and, and see, you were, those were literally, you got into it in the last days of the Wild West of performing, right? Those were, oh, yeah. those were, it's not like it is today. And we'll talk about that later on. But those days were, that's when you saw the weird things. That's when you saw oh, yeah. people doing cocaine off hookers butts, uh, you know, right there before they went on stage. You were, you got to see the tail end of that. 
Well, there was a lot. Yeah, I mean, we did a lot of. It's funny because I was, like I said, this this particular week, I was thinking about all the Van Halen shows I saw, and I, I had to contemplate going and rummaging through some of my archives back there to find a picture of Eddie Van Halen. But you know, in those days, there just wasn't there wasn't the access we have today. They didn't let you back in in the backstage and do pictures and things like that because they didn't want you to see what the hell was going on. <laughs> what is because this is when we, we're taping this where this is the tape this is the week uh that uh, eddie van halen died so i have to ask you what what recollections do you have? i never met him in all the years i've been doing radio i never met anybody from van halen uh, what was eddie like um pretty much what everyone i mean i saw them many times i only met him a couple of times but he was he was uh i guess the easiest way to to describe it is he was as big of a rock star as he was. He was very un rock star like. He was very he was always very friendly. He was very cordial. It was very humble. Um, even though he was the, at the time and still maybe to this day was the greatest guitar player ever in the history of rock and roll. But he was great, and and I knew because I had because again he was relatively local. I knew Sammy Hagar a little bit, um, well enough to him to know who I was. So one of the times I was with and did that meet and greet with, with Eddie Van Halen was, was with Hagar. So it was a lot more comfortable because, because I knew Sammy. He was he was good unless you worked with him, I guess, uh, you know, because that's what I've read about it. And, and people were saying, you know, because I mean, listen, Sammy, Sammy Hagar, David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony, Gary Sharon. Everybody forgets Gary Sharon was the lead singer of Van Halen for about six to seven minutes. Uh, but he ended up firing everybody. And, you know, they tried to blame Alex, but Alex was just going along with, with no, Eddie, right? He just did whatever he did. Yeah, well, and the guy that I did the most that worked at Van Halen was a guy named John Watkins. And that means nothing to any of you except I will tell you that John Watkins was their pyro guy. So that's what he did. He did all the pyro on the shows. Well, it's just it's just crazy, and, and you know all the, the, the as 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 one. Of, well, I think Sammy Hagar said it. Uh, once Eddie started drinking, he's a different guy. Once he started drinking, yeah. he would go to the drugs, and then once you had that guy, th- there was no reasoning with that guy. There, there was just that yeah. was he was he, he was, was like not. I said, in my interactions with him, he was always he was always great. But that was you know. You know how long it was, three or four minutes. So. And and that was the difference because it was one thing because I did I did pop radio for a while. And I remember I was telling this story, right? I, I've taken these teenagers in Albuquerque, New Mexico, right? It's teenagers in New Mexico, New Mexico, backstage to meet Poison. Now I'm talking anywhere between nine to 12 to 13, 14, 15 year old kids, mainly young girls, right? Yep. And, and I go up and they're like backstage and I'm talking to the bassist. And I remember, uh, I can't remember his name now. I can't remember his name. I'm blanking on him. And I'm like, wow, you guys have a lot of energy. How, how does that work? And he looks at me, he goes, mainline and heroin, bitch. <laughs> yep. And I just right. turned around and looked at the girls and said, okay, we're done. Let's go. Let's go. Here we go. Let's get out of here. And, and I can tell you, I've not had that done with the exception of people always ask us if there's anybody in, in country music. Remember Hank Williams Jr. And, and I think you were at that show over at uh, San Jose State where. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
where we took people backstage and he comes out of the dressing room and starts cussing at us and telling us to get the hell away from him. And he was already yep. drunk and the show hadn't started. And, and, he, and he did like four songs and left. Oh, and that's, that's that we have very few badly behaved people in this format. Very few. And, and, well, I think it's, I, you and I've talked before. I think it's because they've had Garth Brooks teach him how to do it. Um, I also think it's because it's not an act. So much of the rock band, so much of that stuff was an act that they had to be. I mean, Dee Snyder is, is not at all like Dee Snyder on stage um, from Twisted Sister. Mm-hmm. All those guys, I mean, the, 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 um, um, the Scorpions guys were interesting because they didn't speak very good English. So you couldn't really have a conversation with them. But, you know, in the ACD, the point is that those guys were all doing an act. David Lee Roth was doing an act. He doesn't drink. What he was, David Lee Roth, he, does, he doesn't drink or do drugs. Was, what he was doing on stage was completely different. Whereas our guys in this format, I mean, what you see is what you get. I mean, you, there, there's not an act. Yeah. I mean, Merle Haggard was as ornery as he come across. That's who he was. Alan Jackson, shy. Garth is exuberant. Shy as to be. And, and Thomas Rhett is just the funniest, nicest guy. And Blake Shelton is funnier in real life than I think he is even on stage. Oh, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I think that the, the reason that Blake was never a big star until he went on TV is because no one saw his personality until he went on TV. His personality is the same as it's always been. It's just, I, I, <laughs> we were at an ACM after party one time. He and Miranda were married, and I was standing <clears throat> with the, the general manager who you've talked to, John Esposito yeah. of Warner Brothers Records, Scott Hendricks, who is their head of A&R, but also Scott has, I think, 53 or 4 number one records that he's produced going back oh, back to before Trace Atkins, um, which was one of the first ones. And Blake was standing there talking to us. And Miranda walks up to him and says... Um, we need to go, not this nicely, we need to go right now. I'm tired of being here, and we need to get the hell out of here, so let's get on and go. And she turns around on her heel and walks off. And Blake kind of looks at the three of us and goes, well, folks, you heard the lady. (laughs) (laughs) We've said before, I was shocked that they lasted as long as they did. I really did. I mean, high fives to them. They would have. Well, they would have Carly Pierce and Michael Ray if they had had COVID at the time. They wouldn't have lasted that long. Yeah, they had a chance to stay away from each other. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing that we've, we've noticed is that, you know, especially these, these people, it's not like those of us who live regular lives. We see our wives every day. We do. Right. Exactly. Those, those guys are used to not seeing each other for days, weeks, sometimes months at a time. Oh, especially, you know, like, especially after they have kids. So, like, Lauren um, Akins, uh, Thomas's wife, she, there's a song on the last Thomas record called um, Thank You for Living the Stream You Never Had. And he wrote that song about her because she went to nursing school. They were high school students. Yeah. And they went, she went to nursing school, and the day that she graduated from nursing school, she went and got on a tour bus with 11, as he says, smelly, sweaty guys. And toured with him for a year. Um, and then they, you know, started doing it. So now she does it. 
But the point is that when they once they have kids, they no longer are out of the road with these guys. And, you know, Luke and um, Caroline were also high school sweethearts. And she was out with him originally. But once they stop, once they start having kids, then, you know, Catherine Church was with Eric all the time. Still is for the most part. She still is because she's so involved in his career. She still is even, they take the kids on the road. But anyway. Yeah. Well, and the fact that they've, I think they've learned something from it. You don't, you won't, you don't want to be Merle Haggard with six wives. You don't want to be, no. you know, that's not that no. there. And you look at these long-term marriages. I mean, Dirk Bentley, how long has he been with, uh, I can't remember her name. Gosh, um, I, uh, not I as long as some of the others, but yeah, so wild. Now it's been ten years, I think. Yeah, yeah well, I th- no, I think it's longer than that. They have they have ten, twelve year old kids. I saw a picture of them the other day. Yeah, maybe it is that long. I, yeah, you know, I just forget. I truly forget how long Dirks has been around. I mean, you go back and he Dirks Bentley, believe it or not, was the very first country show that we ever did at the Radio Club. Wow. Now you have to understand if you're listening around the country, rodeo clubs, this, this become legendary country bar in San Jose. Uh, that's funny because it's only, it's only country when we're there. When we're, when we're not there, it's a Latino bar, but, uh, well, we refer to it as a shithole Mexican bar. It has a lot, it has, it has a lot of, a lot of artist history, and there's a certain rite of passage, if you will. I mean, as I always say, anybody who's anybody in this format has played the rodeo club at least twice. Yeah, let um, me tell you that 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 includes Florida Georgia Line, that includes Dirks oh. Bentley, that includes Jason Aldean, and that includes Taylor Swift. Um, Eric Church, we were selling out Eric Church shows before Eric Church was selling out shows anywhere. Um, Luke Bryan played it three times that first that first year and a half that he was out. Um, Zach Brown played it when nobody had any idea who the hell Zach Brown was. Um, we have so many times of, because we do so many shows, we had so many openers. Sugarland opened for a guy named David Ball. You have to go look him up. That's that got a thinking problem. <laughs> and, uh, he had, uh, that was when, um, um, uh, Private Malone mm-hmm. was a single, so I don't remember what year that was, but it was when Private Malone was a single, and we had a book, and they, that's when Sugarland still had three, and they're the other Christian, who kind of looked a lot like Joe Diffie, but he, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's an insult to her, Joe Diffie, I'm not sure. <laughs> I always refer to Sugarland when Joe Diffie was in the band, but anyway, the point is, <laughs> the point is, they came out and Jennifer was as amazing as Jennifer is. And I was standing with David Ball and he looks at me and he goes, just what in the hell am I supposed to do to follow that? Because <laughs> 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 you've been around it. So that's when we talk about the club rodeo uh, and we've been doing this forever. Like these guys, like I said, uh, I remember we had Jason Aldean signing autographs at a Walmart in Hayward, California. <laughs> <laughs> on his first album release. I, I remember that as the day is long. I was out there with uh, him. And and so it's this is we we've had these we have this relationship with these stars. And let's be clear, and I'm not just blowing smoke. Nate has this great relationship with them because Nate, first of all, understands what they're doing, respects what they're doing, and is honest with them to a fault. Nate will tell you this is a piece of shit right to your face. 
And where everybody else will go, oh, yeah, that's something right there. Yeah. Will you play it? Oh, yeah, we'll find a place for it where Nate will go, I'm never playing that in the history of mankind. Will that ever be heard on this radio station? And and they've learned well, to respect it from you. Yeah, well, I mean, we're back to the radio club and opening act. Um, the very first time I met Charles David Hillary from Lady A, we were, they were opening, they were on the radio tour, and I had a sampler. And the sampler was from the original first album, and there was two songs that were sung by Charles and two songs that were sung by Hillary. There were no duets. There was no, there was no collaboration. It was, um, uh, let's not live here anymore, and, um, uh, almost one of the hardest, I think. That may not be right. Mm-hmm. I always called it Mason Dixon, but I think that's the name of the song. Anyway, so we're at dinner, and I said, you guys realize that you have no chance, right? And they looked at me like I had said something that was blasphemous. And I said, it's hard enough to break one act. You guys are trying to break two. You have two different lead singers. So once you have success with one song, you're going to be like starting all over when Hillary's singing the second song. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and they looked at me, and I went, well, we have duets. And I'm all, well, then you should probably try putting one out. So they, they went on stage that night, and they were opening for Keith Anderson. Keith Anderson, picking wildflowers. Exactly. And I think it was actually before picking wildflowers. Maybe not. But anyway, um, they did Run to You. They did um, another one from the first album. Anyway, the two, the, besides Love Don't Live Here, the two biggest songs from the first album were both duets. And I went backstage and I went, holy shit, you guys, where's that been? And um, anyway, and we've been friends ever since. And, and Charles still tells a story about before they went on stage that they went out there and said, let's show this asshole what we can do. And, and as you know, Charles David Hillary are some of my closest friends in this business. So, and and Darius, Darius is another. Here's a great Darius story. Darius Rucker, by the way, for keeping score. Darius Rucker, it was was obviously when he came to country, he was famous as Hootie. And there was a time, certainly, I don't know what time frame you want to give it, maybe late '90s, that Hootie and the Blowfish were the biggest band in the world. Uh-huh. And so he was fairly famous when he decided to cast that aside and go to country. And as he says, I'm just a country boy from South Carolina. Anyway, he comes to dinner. He comes and plays a conference room. We go to dinner at Original Joe's, which is common, and which is an Italian restaurant here in San Jose. And I said to him, do people recognize you? Do you get like a lot of people who recognize you as Hootie? He said, yeah, it happens all the time. So there's a guy and, a, and an older gentleman and a lady across the booth from us, and they keep kind of pointing at him, keep kind of pointing at him and so on and so forth. So they finish their dinner, and they get up, and the gentleman walks over, and Darius looks at me out of the corner of his eye and goes, here we go. And he goes, excuse me, could you tell me where you got those boots? I bet you nobody loved that more than Darius Rucker. I bet he howled. <laughs> he howled and said, uh, boot barn on Broadway in Nashville. And the guy looks at me and goes, thank you. And walked away. And Darius goes, and sometimes they don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and that, that's the cool thing about, about what you do. And, and you develop these relationships with people because you're honest with them. And, and, and they call you for advice. I could embarrass Nate, but the people who will call him and say, listen to this, listen to this, and are names that 
you name a name in country music. And at some point they have reached out to Nate and said, what do you think about this? Because as I said at the beginning of this uh, podcast, he's able to take information, find out the relevant mm. data and show it to you, what it means. Like I said, that story with, uh, with uh, Lady A, until you guys find out a way to be a group instead of two single acts. That that's that's amazing. Well, Darius had a song called "Homegrown Honey," and ironically enough, that song was co-written with Charles Kelly. And they played it for me one time on a golf course, and I looked up on them and I went, "This is the biggest piece of crap that either one of you have ever had." And Charles kind of went, "Well, come," and Darius goes, "Yeah, I know it is. I agree." And, and, and it became a single, and so I, I start, we started playing it. Yeah. And Darius called me up, and he goes, dude, you're playing the song. And I went, yeah, I am. And he goes, but you started with a piece of crap. I went, it may be, but it's still going to be a hit. That just doesn't necessarily. And, and so to this day, he will tell any new artist that the best thing about us is that we will tell you exactly what we think. But we'll still support the artist. <laughs> we'll give you, absolutely. We'll give you a chance. And because it's right. still, we're local radio. And and that's the, uh, we, we're not corporate radio. It's what we do. And I think that gives us a unique perspective on, and, and we don't have to go through a national PD, a regional PD, a group PD, and all that stuff. Uh, that we're able to give you feedback and honesty and, and I think acts We've had people who are who are hits here that really weren't hits anywhere else, haven't we? Oh, absolutely, lots of them, and and to a certain extent, that doesn't do us a lot of good, but it certainly gives them a shot, and and you know, and, and it builds relationships, and guys do stuff as you well know, guys do stuff for us that that they don't do anywhere else, but also the fact of the matter is your ability to bring out the best of them and interviewing them and not asking them the same questions that they hear a hundred different times from a hundred different stations is why it's very easy that since the beginning of this COVID thing, we have had over 100 artist interviews on the morning show and not a one of them is repetitions. And that's, and that's a true testament to your ability. So don't, don't mistake the fact that it's easy to get interviews in the morning show, but it's easy to get interviews in the morning show because you interview great and everyone's willing to do it. It's just no, I can't remember. Reba. I, yeah, maybe not Reba. I just because I can't remember what they asked them before. You know, that's what I've said before is that when you, uh, the people like Reba, the, 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 the icons of this business, and, and I have, I've only met two jerks in this business, in this format. Now, when I was in pop radio, that's a different story. But in this format, I've already told you about one, uh, you know, Hank Williams Jr. And I never got along with Lori Morgan, you know. But then again, I've never heard anybody who did get along with her, including Sammy Kershaw. I was going to say, she's only been married, what, seven times? <laughs> like, that. like you said, you just don't do that anymore in this format. But yeah. um, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in Travis Tritt. Travis Tritt was a pain in the ass. Was he? But, um, yeah. Because he was not a pain in the ass to me, but he only talked to him when I was on the air. Remember, he came in studio one time and, you know, they will be nice to me where they won't be nice to to people who are in front behind, you know, away from the microphone. So that's a little new scoop to me. Yeah, he he was. Again, I kind of knew him when he started. As a matter of fact, we went to see... Uh, wasn't the judge. I can't remember. It was it went back when I worked at the fan. I just think about it for a minute. Um, 
we went to see someone and Williams and Lee were a, were a comedy act um, called The Indian and the White Guy. Yeah. I think they probably changed that these days. But anyway, uh, they're still around because they were big on the national network. And um, Terry Reed was just a great guy. And we went to a show with him and he brought this new kid that was just starting out named Travis Trent. And so I sat with him at a show before he was in it, before, before the before. But yeah, as he, I mean, you know, he kind of faded away after here's a quarter called somebody cares. And it was because he was having a hard time getting along with anybody. Isn't that crazy? I'm always, I'm always fascinated by people who are socially challenged who end up in this business and you have, you have right. the, th- those people, but you have the other people on the, on the different side. Alan Jackson is as shy and quiet as you could possibly be. There's an old school nineties uh, singer, an eighties singer, Ricky Van Shelton, who was mm-hmm. the most uncomfortable person on stage you ever met. He would sing a song and after every song he'd go, we thank you very much. And that was it. <laughs> and then at the end of the show, we thank you very much. He'd turn on and walk off. And and I'm like, what makes people with that social ineptness? And I'm not blaming them for it. It's just we are who we are. Make them gravitate toward a stage. Yeah, well, George Strait's very shy, too. Well, George you were saying Strait, the Montrose guy was so, yeah, so stage. Yeah, right. Um, but George Strait's right. I mean, <laughs> we were doing a meet and greet one time with Alan Jackson, and it was at Shoreline, and I think I had eight winners. Um it might, it might have been 10, whatever, it doesn't matter. So uh, Tony Stevens, who was his longtime road manager, a great guy, and actually uh, right now, today, is the stage manager of the Grand Ole Opry, as a matter of fact. And um, he he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do, do it in two sets of, of winners, but you stay on the bus and I'll rotate the winners. And I'm like, great. I get to stay on the bus with Alan Jackson and try to make conversation for those seven minutes. That it I just developed a cold sweat. <laughs> but you don't take the winners in and out. You sure you don't want to stay on the bus at all? Do it? <laughs> and it was when, whichever, I don't remember what the name of the record was, but it was one of the, it was one of the Leanne Womack records. And as we all know, he was a huge fan of Leanne Womack. Well, I knew the record. So it was on in the background, and I went, thank you. I can talk about this. And so we had the nicest chat ever uh, about that whole Ian Womack record while we were waiting for winners. It was worked out awesome. Because if you found the subject he wanted to talk about, he was great. And, you know, and he was one of, is one of the greatest writers in this format. I think, I think when you look back at Alan Jackson's body of work, the songs that he wrote, I, I mean, Toby Keith is in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Not the Country Songwriters Hall of Fame. He's certainly there. But but Toby Keith is in this American Songwriters Hall of Fame. And if Alan Jackson isn't, and I don't know that he is or isn't, it's, it's a travesty. Because some of the greatest songs in this country, especially in this format, were written by Alan Jackson. His, his ability to not get pretentious with what he was saying or how he was saying his ability mm-hmm. to speak like the common man. And I remember I'm getting mm-hmm. criticized for where were you when the world stopped turning? But I, you forget that at the time, I'm not sure I know the difference between a rock and a rant. None of us did. Right. None of us did. Unless you were a complete right. policy wonk or a geography teacher, you had no idea. I, I watched CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference between Iraq and Iran. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, it, that song was, I just don't think there was anything that, that captured that time better than that song. 
And I remember when he did it live on an awards show, which would have been probably, oh, would have probably been that fall. It would have been the fall of 2001. And there was no such thing as YouTube or any of this other crap. I had, I worked for three hours trying to find a recording of that that we could play on the air. I, I remember. I remember we found it and we were on there because they had not shipped it out yet. They, they, right. It was just so new. And as he always says, it basically the song came to him in a dream, didn't it? Yep. Yep. That, yep. That but, you he, know, and, and besides that, you go back and look at it, it like Drive and some of those songs that were that were just so well written and well done. So, yeah. But he was shy. He was. He wasn't. He wasn't not friendly. He was just shy. He was just shy. We've talked to him a couple of times, and he's always a challenging interview. Not because he's a jerk. He's not a jerk. He's just. No, he's, he's like you're saying. You have to figure out. It, it, that's the key. If you can figure out what interests him, and 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 go from there. Alan Jackson, you want to talk about boats? You talk about boats, or you get him to talk about his daughters. You got a chance. You know, well, and I think I think an interesting current comparison is Cody Johnson. I mean, I thought uh, you did an interview with him that ran today, and again, this is tape, so I'm not sure what today is. But the fact of the matter is, you did an interview with Cody Johnson, and he's a tough interview. He is. If if you get him talking about a subject that he wants to talk about, like rodeo or a song, he's all in. But I was I was telling Judy that that um. I went to, I did not know Cody and I and he came out, he was big in Texas and I last year they did a showcase of his in Nashville and it was about one of the best nights I've ever spent in Nashville because I really got to know him. And now, as you know, he's done s- several things for us, including a private show at, at Original Channels before before that, before his big show. I can get him on the air. He's great, and he's become a good friend of mine. But that that night in Nashville was the reason why, because we had a great time, and we were able to spend some call. Now, I did get hammered, to be honest, and <laughs> I... <laughs> I, I, I I, I woke up the morning, the next morning, and I had a flight, and I looked down, and I still had one shoe on. If you're enjoying this podcast, then maybe you'd like to hear more. Gary Scott Thomas hosts the morning show at 95.3 KRTY in San Jose, and you can tune in at krty.com. At 8.30 each weekday morning, Gary and Julie talk to artists, songwriters, and industry insiders. You'll hear from people like Garth Brooks and Luke Combs, new stars like Ingrid Andrus and Maren Morris, and songwriters like Shane McAnally, Lori McKenna, and Luke Laird. You'll find the best in country music on the South Bay's best country, K. Rty.com. And realized that I needed to get to the airport and I was not going to make it all the way home without being in some issues. But that was the longest four and a half hour flight I've ever had. But that night was worth it. Well, see, and I think we were talking about a while ago, you're like, you're saying you don't know how much it helps us. I love the fact that when you go to Texas, it is a different world of radio and music. It really is. They'll play songs that you don't hear literally anywhere else. And what I've learned to appreciate about us as I've traveled around the country is that we have kind of carved out that lane for us too. That my my biggest thing, Chris Cagle is not really known anywhere else in the country, (laughs) but he's a big star in San Jose, which always, you know, cracks me up, you know, that we have that relationship. And again, 
it's talk about things. Listen, one of the things we did last year, one of the biggest groups in the in in country music right now is Dan and Shay. Dan and Shay played a private show for us at a winery. It, it, you know, the height of their powers. Uh, and that's, that's that relationship. Casey Musgraves has done that. We've just got, and, and they and know Dennis that. would have done it. Dennis Shea would have done it in 2019 if it wasn't for friggin' Justin Bieber's wedding. <laughs> so, cause we had it set and they're going to redo what they did in 2018, last year, 2019. And they had to cancel it because it was a day of friggin' Justin Bieber's wedding and they got invited. See now, and I think that it leads me to this. I think. I think there is a future for radio for local radio. I think, I think there's, if you can be a unique product to yourself and I'm, I'm like, you know, that's what Texas does. I think, I think that's what we do. As you've said, and that was brilliant. But Nate said this one time to us in a meeting, he goes, this is what we offer people. We offered them access. And that so stuck with me. I'm like, that is absolutely brilliant and where where did you get that from where did that come from well i'm afraid that that on that subject that you bring up i'm afraid that we have we being radio have lost our way at what we do best and what we do best is we interact with our audience Mm -hmm. personally and so many guys or girls, and so many people who do radio now are doing 10 different markets. There's no possible way for you to be on the air in Seattle, Nashville, Miami, Baltimore, Detroit, and Memphis and be talking to the same person. Because all those cities are very different from one another. And if you don't know that, in every city, I, don't, I mean, I just pick some randomly. If you don't know what makes that city tick or that city run, how do you relate to the audience? And what we do best, I always say radio was the original social media. Mm-hmm. We told you what was going on in your market, what shows to go to, who to listen to, what the new band is, what the new restaurant is, what the new retail store is. That's what radio does, is inform its local audience of local happening. So to me... I, back in the days of the fair, the most exciting thing about the fair, which wasn't an exciting thing to begin with, but one of the most exciting, <laughs> things, one of the most exciting things about the fair was to walk on stage before an artist started and look at the crowd and look at the anticipation of the crowd and, and see that they were excited about seeing what they're about to see. That's something that that an, an average person doesn't ever get to see in their working career. I have had the advantage for years of being able to see the fruits of my labor of what I do for a living, which is a happy audience. So many guys who work in radio don't go out. So many programmers say, oh, I don't want you to go to a show. I haven't missed a show in 15 years. That's a lot. I missed one because I was playing in a golf tournament somewhere else. But um, <laughs> it was Aaron Watson at the radio club. And, <laughs> Aaron um, Watson. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, but the point is that you cannot get a feel for what the audience is doing, saying, feeling, without seeing it. So it's a very simple process, but the simple process is just be a part of it. Go. Go see what you're missing. Go see what the act is doing. I mean, 
all of these relationships, all of this stuff that we're talking about, all of this ability to create a special thing here in San Jose is as simple as being present. That's as simple as that, and it's the hardest thing to do. Well, you know, you had it in every, every day, everyday life. I mean, it really is hard to be present, but that here, yeah. and that's the relationship, and, and you've forged it out. There's let me, let me embarrass him right now. He was Nate is one of the twelfth. He's the twelfth most influential person in country radio, or is it country music? To me, there's no uh, difference. Airplay. Airplane, airplane. Yeah. an airplane. So it's 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 like, you know, this is ahead of a lot of different people. And I think it's because you have made yourself available to them. Uh, you have you've seen them what they do. And you've told me that before. You've come to me and said, hey, I need you to go to the show because you need to see this person live. It's not going mm-hmm. to work if you don't see them live. And every single time it's been like, absolutely. You're absolutely. I've learned to trust you on that. If you say you got to see him live. I'm like, All right, I'm in. Okay, I'm, I'm in. Well, and, and that's the thing. The other thing is that, and I, and I think this applies to so much of everything else, which is, you know, I didn't start my relationship with Luke Bryan when he was a star. I started my relationship with Luke Bryan when he wasn't a star. I didn't start my relationship with Eric Church when he was a star. I started it when he was standing on the freaking parking lot, standing on the rolling radio signing autographs. Um and and it, and, it, and that's the point. I mean, Thomas Rat had him I in a pool hall. No shit. Before that, it was it was at a. Uh, I went to a showcase um, at the House of Blues Foundation room in in Las Vegas. Why? Well, because it was in freaking Vegas in January. What else would you do? And I had asked three people: um, Scott Borchetta, who is the head of. Big Machine Records um, at the time. Now he's the head of all things, all things Scott. Um, and Bobby Pinson, um, who, as you know, is is a songwriter, uh, and at that time was a really hot songwriter, and he cooled off for a while, now he's hot again. What act I should be waiting for? Who is the next big act? And both of them said the same thing. Red Inkins, Kid Thomas. So when that showcase came out, I said, I've got to go. So we're sitting there, and, it's, and he's playing songs. Your favorite? What do you get? What, uh, something to do with my hands. Something to do with my hands. And then he played this song called "Beer with Jesus." And I stood up in the middle of the room in front of a bunch of radio programmers and Scott, and, and I said, "Dude, that is the best country song that I have heard this year, and maybe in a couple of years." And so afterwards, we were talking. And I mean, this, he's like brand new. And I said something about Eric Church, and he goes, Eric Church is my idol. He is who I want to be. I model everything I do after what kind of career he's had. So I texted Eric, and I said, hey, have you heard of this kid, of, of Red Aiken's kid, Thomas? He has a song called Beer with Jesus. It's just about the best thing I've ever heard. And Eric texts me back, like, while I'm still in the room, and says, I know the kid, I know the tune, it's awesome. And so I showed it to Thomas and literally about shit his pants. So but the, point is, the point is that that's where those relationships start is, is at the very first time. So many guys in radio don't pay any attention to new guys or new artists. And those new artists, every single star in this format, with the possible exception of Carrie Underwood, was a new artist at one point. 
I uh, I love the idea that because we had Thomas at a pool hall that's no longer open in downtown San Jose, and he remembers that. The last time I talked oh, yeah, to him, I just said, I said, dude, absolutely. we entered a pool. He goes, I do remember. He goes, I remember we were at the pool hall. I'm like, and he was and he was sick, and he and did four songs, and it was the South First Billiards, which is now an event space, and we and that we just did an event, and we did a songwriters event with Lee Miller and. Uh, 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 Wyndham Mobley, uh, back when we could actually do it. Yeah, back when we could have people together. I can't think of what it's called, but anyway. And then, and then TR also, he played the rodeo club twice. Uh, he has a hot sauce bottle. So. Yeah, yeah we have a tradition. You have to explain the hot sauce bottle because uh, oh. this is a, this is well, a goes, San Jose it tradition. Luke, it goes back to Luke Bryan when he played the, the rodeo club three times and we do meet and greets in the kitchen, and literally in a kitchen. And in the kitchen is a rack of, of condiment bottles, and I pulled it half a uh, bottle of barbecue sauce off the counter and said, Here, sign this, and it'll be like luggage. Every time you get a hit record, we'll send it back and forth. So when he got his first number one, which was Do I, we sent him this, this half empty bottle of barbecue sauce, and he, he his wife actually got it and called him and she goes, Lou, somebody just sent you a half empty bottle of barbecue sauce. He goes, I know what it is, honey, put it on the mantle. So that's part of the tradition. And uh, every time an artist who plays in the club gets their first number one, we sent the bottle back with a plaque. And we just sent our 71st bottle back um, to um, Gabby Barrett. Yeah, wow. Yeah. We it's it's a tradition that the stars buy into. And that's what I said. We've we've created our own little world here. Right. And I think that was yeah, the vision. Brand. Huh? Yep, it is. It, it, it's our own little brand. And our brand extends to Nashville. If you I mean, and a follow that is, you know, really the songwriter series is another brand that we've created that the Nashville songwriting community is a very small community. And we have been lucky enough to have an event that songwriters talk to other songwriters about that when I find a contact or go after someone like Ashley Gorley, who is only the National Songwriter of the Year for the last five years, and say, hey, would you come to my event? He goes, all my friends are talking about it. I can't wait to do it. Yeah, if you ever get a chance to come out, once we get back to doing the uh, uh, events again, to come to one of our songwriter series, because it's amazing. We we set up the template and and know how to do it and watch these people just expand and, and have fun. And, and once we cut their wine off, it gets better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, did, we did institute we did institute a no whiskey policy yeah, we, did, yeah we, had, we had somebody had stand up and take a pee behind the stage so uh okay. we said, somebody yeah, there, we, were, there were several somebody there were several somebody uh, one of whom one of whom was down there and didn't realize he was down there and i picked up a half drink vodka soda that had been sitting on the table for a while and went to throw it over and realized that oh no there's someone down there so <laughs> What has been what has been the biggest change that you've seen in the format? Uh, in, 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 let's let's go because we've both been here for a long time. But in the last in the last twenty years, what has been the biggest change that you've seen happen within the industry in the format? Um, I would say the overall sound is so inclusive of all sounds. I think that, you know, there was a time and every time in the history of this format, that's, that's the case. But I think now it's more diverse than ever in terms of the size of sounds. But I think it's more diverse than ever because this format is one that 
that welcomes, if you will, younger artists. And as the artists continue to evolve, and as artistry continues to evolve, their influences are different. 20 years ago, if you talk to an artist and say, who are your influencers? They would have said, Will Haggard, Waylon Jennings, um, um, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, Loretta Lynn, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, now, Buck Owens, now if you ask an artist who their influences are, it could be anybody from Diplo to um, Justin Timberlake to um, Luke Bryant or Eric Church. I mean, it's a cross-genre of influences. And I think that cross-genre of influences matches society in that there is no such thing as a genre-specific listener anymore. I think everyone listens to everything. So I think our format allows us to have a diversity of sound that we've never had before. I mean, you have the very traditional sounding songs like John Party. You have... You have Thomas Rhett, who can do, who can do everything from a from a rap song to a traditional country song. So it's just you know, and and a lot of people called that the bro country era. Well, the bro country era was simply a pop country era. Um, so it's it's you know you have you have Eric Church. I mean, the, the stick out your country song is a rock song um, from that kind of genre, but. It's just, like I said, it's just. I think it's just diversity. I think, I think we are the most inclusive of all the musical formats. That that you can hear Pink or Nelly or or somebody on on a, on a country artist country cut. You're not hearing that in any other format. They're not going to play Kenny Chesney. You know, going with. K-pop or whatever, you're you're just not going to get you're not going to get that right. that uh, that 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 crossover where I think we are more inclusive than we ever been, and you you would know this better because you deal with record companies more than I do. My take is when I first got into this business a long time ago, <laughs> I can remember when Johnny Lee was a new act. I can remember when Reba <laughs> was a new act. Um, that the record company would pretty much tell you, this is the way you're going to look. This is what you're going to sound like. And yes. here's your songs. Oh. oh, I mean, there is no, there is no bigger poster child than that than John Michael Montgomery. John Michael Montgomery couldn't sing. <laughs> and, but, but, but <laughs> okay, now, am I lying? Um, I'm not saying you're lying. (laughs) (laughs) They they found a song, a couple of songs he could almost sing. It was great. Well, you know what? He could sing great on the record. Yeah, so much he didn't replicate it live so much. Anyway, doesn't matter. It fit the look. Tracy Bird, who actually could sing, but you know, you think of those mid early to mid '90s country stars that all looked like the same, and 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 quite frankly, where are they today? Um, you know, whereas Tim McGraw or or George Strait or somebody like that who had some substance to them persevered through the changes. I mean, Tim McGraw has evolved with the format. Right. I called Mama, which is a current single, sounds like Tim McGraw, but it also sounds like country radio in the 2020. So, um, anyway, I'll say there's a lot of manufacturing and now there's a lot more because it, the way that it works has changed. I mean, Riley Green is a, is a good example. Um, there's there's very few better examples than Luke Combs. Um, um, Kane Brown is the same. Um, uh, I'm missing one. Uh, but anyway, all those guys got signed because they were having huge success in a region. 
mean, Riley Green was selling out bars in the Southeast before he ever had a record deal. Um, same with same with Kane Brown had huge response on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys just talked to Priscilla Block. Priscilla Block got signed because she was a huge success on TikTok. Um, so I think that's the thing. I think that people are getting signed now because of what they're doing, not necessarily of what they look like. Well, and 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 to that point, I think that's what the record companies are doing now. It's like, what are you bringing new to the party? Whereas it used to be, even in the seventies and eighties, in the sixties, you know, we we glorify that. We forget there was a lot of cookie cutter music yeah. that that you looked a certain way and you got this deal because you looked this way and you sounded this way and 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 now all of a sudden when i go to work when i listen to care to i when i when i listen to country radio it's like man and it is everything where you can have a john uh john party where you can have a kane brown where you can have a florida georgia line where you can have a zach brown and you never and the, the funny thing is is you never know what even that artist is going to sound like from cut to cut you know, and, and again, I mean, FGL is a perfect example. I mean, FGL, this, the current stuff sounds more like their their cruise era stuff. Um, you know, it's it's and party was of course <laughs> was of course big here before he was ever big, and now he's becoming, but he's becoming a big star. But there's no bigger star than Luke Combs, and Luke Combs, I mean, you know, Luke Combs modeled his entire career after Eric Church. He did it his way. And, and and he's just a great singer, but he he's not, you know, he, there's no way that Luke Combs could have been a big artist in the early 90s because he looked like a country star. Mm-mm, he, he didn't look like John Michael Montgomery, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> had no way. They would have forced they would have forced him to give his songs to John Michael Montgomery. Yeah, that's true. You know, and that would have done anything for anybody. <laughs> you don't I don't I don't need to hear John Michael Montgomery sing Hurricane. I don't. It's it's just it's fascinating to me. And also, I want to get you to comment on the the we had a big controversy years ago, years ago about females, female artists in country music. Um, Where do you do you think do you think it was legitimate that we weren't playing enough country music? Because we always have here. Care to why we always have because it's always been a song based operation. but do you think that was legitimate criticism of the industry? Probably. Um, I think I think it was a there has been for some reason, uh, and I don't really understand this because it's never showed up in anything that I have done. But there was a there was a legitimate research survey that showed that women don't like listening to women on the radio. Now whether that's true, false, or in between, it was a legitimate research study. Mm-hmm. My feeling on that is, I don't know. I'm not a woman. Um, but the fact of the matter is, some of the biggest stars in this format <laughs> have been female. Shania Twain, Reva McIntyre, Martina McBride. Um, Trisha Yearwood. Trisha Yearwood. Mm-hmm. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Miranda, um, Karen Underwood. I, I don't I don't know how legitimate that is. I just think that in the long run, the best song wins. And if the best song is by a female, then let's play it. I think that Carly Pierce has had some remarkable success in the last couple of years. I think Gabby Barrett has had some remarkable success in the last couple of years. I think Lady A had a lot of songs that were that were uh, 
sang by Hillary. I think Little Big Town had a lot of songs that were sang by Karen. They're not considered female artists because they're in a group. But Pontoon is a female song. It's sang by Karen Fairchild. Well, think about it. But um, Little Big Town has become Karen Fairchild as doing the vocals. Yeah. I mean, they don't even yeah. have Jimmy or Philip sing leads anymore on, on singles. No. And they don't because it's, because it's Karen. I mean, even um, Better Man. I, I, I was on Luke Bryan's bus after a show and he was playing me some new stuff that he had and Jimmy and Karen were standing there because it was, it was Jim, it was um, Luke Bryan, a little bit town and Dustin Lynch. And we all ended up on the bus afterwards and Jimmy and Karen may or may not have had a little extra red wine that night. And Nate may or may not have had a little extra red wine that night. And and um, Judy, of course, was not. She was driving. But the um, Judy is Nate's wife, by the way. In case you're in, you didn't know. They, they, um, they, Luke had played on a four or five songs, and so Michael Carter. This is a really long story to get to your point, but that's all right. Uh, Michael Carter plays guitar for uh, Luke, and has since the very first day that Luke we ever met Luke at a chicken. I mean, the kitchen display at the San Jose Home Show playing two songs acoustically and judging somebody's chicken recipe. He and my wife, <laughs> they were the judges. <laughs> That's her claim to fame. I judged a chicken contest with Luke Bryan. <laughs> and, and Michael Carter, so Michael uh, Carter basically discovered, not really discovered, but made Cole Swindell into an artist because Cole was the merchandise seller for Luke. When they first, when Luke first started, and as both Luke and Cole will attest to, he couldn't count for shit, so they had to fire him. But they signed him a publishing deal. Um, so anyway, Jimmy and Karen were standing there, and and so Michael had played a couple of Cole songs. Dustin played so they go, "Well, we have one. Would you would you listen to it?" And I'm all, "Well, of course." Well, it was Better Man, and I freaked out because I thought it was like the best thing I heard them do. And they looked at me and they said, "Do you think?" people will think it's about us. We're afraid to release it because I don't want people, because Jimmy and Karen are married. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to think it's about us. And I said, dude, that song is so freaking good that I don't get that at all. No, I, I don't think so. I think it's going to be the biggest song you've had since Pond 2. Now, as I previously mentioned, I was hammered. And so when I actually heard it again a few weeks later, so they had not played it for anyone on the radio. I was the first person on the radio to hear it. They had just cut it. And um, I heard it again several weeks later, and I went, oh, my God, I was right. Sure glad. <laughs> sure, glad. sure glad it doesn't suck. Because anyway, and, and the other thing I said that night was, did you guys write it? And they said, no. It was written by a new guy in town, and I can't even remember his name. And I went, oh, okay. And I had occasion to see their manager a couple of weeks later <laughs> at a lunch, and I was talking about it again. And I said, who wrote it? That's how this dude got me signed. So I kind of blew it off. So one day I was sitting in my office and my phone rang, and it was Karen. And I answered it, and she goes, okay. So because you're the only one who asked, and because we're about ready to do a, a, an announcement at the Opry about doing a residence at the Ryman, Jason and I, who's our manager, are going to tell you the truth. I went, about what? They said, about Better Man. I went, okay. They went, Taylor Swift wrote it. <laughs> well, I'm all, oh. And they said, but well, we never really wanted to say anything because we wanted people to judge it on the song, not who wrote it. 
And I said, so basically you lied to me. And they hit, yes, I did. We both lied to you. I remember Philip Sweet was telling me, he goes, she sent it to me, and I thought it was a junk email, and I almost deleted it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so then, anyway, that was, on a, that was on a bus, uh, Luke Bryan's bus at Shoreline. And Luke hadn't heard it either, but. And see, that, and that's what I'm saying. I think there, I, and, and this has been my take on it. People ask me about this. I think we go in cycles. I think we go in cycles, just like baseball, football, basketball. Kids yeah. cycle to that sport. So you get the best right. athletes in the 60s and 70s were playing uh, baseball, right? And then, you know, you go to the 80s and 90s and it starts turning to football. And then Jordan comes along and starts turning to basketball. So all the great athletes who could play anything go that way. And I think, I think, the great female artists, not all of them, but the majority of the talents flux toward pop music, right? And, well, and, there's a lot more female playing pop. Yes, uh-huh. I, I, I agree. I mean, look at Taylor. She left because she went to pop. Did she go to pop? And because then, she hated country? No, because she was a 25-year-old female, and that's what that's what she did. That uh-huh. was her style of music at that point. And I think so. You're seeing all of these things out there. You got the Mariah Carey's that she pulled along. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wanted to do that. And now you're starting to see the flux come back. And I think the mm-hmm. level of singing now is amazing. You sit back and listen to a Gabby Barrett saying, you sit back and listen to Mickey Guyton saying, these, they're all next level singers now. There's no yeah. singers. They're, they're next yeah, level. That's a- well, that's the problem with that's the problem in some instances with this format is you can't hide. There is if you don't go and sound like you do on the record live, the people will not believe you. It's it's authentic. Luke Combs sounds exactly like he sounds on the record live. Carly Pierce sounds exactly like she sounds. Ashley McBride, Ashley McBride is right there. But there is no one, no one who sounds better than Carrie Underwood and she sounds exactly like she does in a record live. Yeah. And I have seen Carrie Underwood do one off shows, I mean one off songs. I have seen her perform. I've seen her do anything you can imagine over the last fifteen years and I have never ever seen her miss. Ever. Not once. She is and, she truly is a fluke. And 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 she's just nice and she's awesome and she'll do what you ask and she's just Oh, great. That whole thing that she did at the ACMs where she did the female history and, and the five different songs or six, whatever it was, for yeah. different uh, divergent on it, there's no way to pull that off. So if you think you can sing, you're competing with Carrie Underwood. You're competing with Miranda Lambert. You're competing with those great singers. Good luck. Yeah, and they and they have. They've stepped their game up. I mean, you just – it's amazing how, how good – how many good singers we have now. And even if you're not the greatest singer, that means you're probably one of the best damn songwriters. But even as we were talking to Shane McAnally, his song Songland, there's so many songwriters now who can sing. It's not fair. Yeah, that's true. I mean, even even Garth will tell you he's not the best singer in the world, but Garth was the best entertainer. Mm-hmm. And, and Garth could pull it off. And let's be honest, he had the best songs. Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> you go through that. See, now, Jake Owen, Jake Owen is as good as anyone I know at picking songs for themselves, um, except the one guy who's the best guy ever at picking songs, and that's Garth Brooks. Yeah. Uh, Garth, and, and you know, Tim had that moniker for a while. 
Tim Tim had the golden well, touch where he could never pick. Well, and but he was helping Jody Messina pick her songs. I mean, whatever that yeah. whole triumphant. Yeah. We're we're helping them. He had that ear, but then he released Suspicious Minds, and everything was gone. And I'm excited about it because this new record has a lot of those kind. I mean, I, I called Mama, which is actually written by our friend Lance Miller, um, is is just is just a throwback to when Tim was picking great songs. So, and his his longtime producer is a guy named Byron Gallimore, who is whose wife, whose name is Missy, is is Byron has always given credit for picking those songs, but. Um, but Garth, you know, like I said, he picked great songs, and, and I think that's the key. I think I think the key is, especially for guys who don't write, if you're good at picking songs, you're going to be fine. Luke's great at it. Uh, so, when I first asked Dave to do this, he's like, "You said an hour. You think we could talk for an hour?" <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Dude, this is just going to be part one." <laughs> I'm not Joe Rogan. I ain't got three hours. You need, you don't either. I don't have three hours to do a podcast, but, but this has been as good as I thought it would be. And it's fascinating. And, and I can't wait till we do it again. And I promise you folks, he'll be back because we've, we've got about, oh, maybe a, a tenth of a tenth of his stories. Uh, yeah, true. Yeah. We got a lot more to do. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. It's, it's, it's you know, it's my pleasure to, it's my pleasure to have spent the last twenty five years working with you and, and having. I mean, I get a lot of credit for it, but as I always say, what we do here and how it's done is a collection of all of us, and you are certainly one of the very biggest parts of that. So, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. The outer's mine, Nate Deaton. Thanks for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe, download a few more episodes, and please leave a review. Reviews really help us get this out to more people like you. Also, we'd love to hear what your favorite part was. Be sure to join us on social media to engage in even more unexpected conversations. Until next time. Until next time.